Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 15 for the third quarter of December 2011. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Galactic Alignments, Part 1, within the 2012 Mythos. The basic claim is that at the end of the Mayan calendar, which, as we discussed last time in episode 14, doesn't actually end, there will be some sort of alignment with something near us or something in the galaxy. And when that something happens, something unusual will be the result, and that it will affect us in some way. I know that that sounds incredibly vague, and that's because there are so many different alignment ideas out there. A simple description of one that encompasses them all is just not possible. The ideas vary among Earth will align with, or the Sun will align with, or all the planets will align with, Planet X, the center of the galaxy, the black hole in the center of the galaxy, the plane of the galaxy, or the dark rift in the galaxy. And when this happens, a beam of energy will shoot out and hurt us, or elevate us to new enlightenment, or cause a pole shift or flip, or something else, but the Mayans just didn't want to tell us. Now, from all this, what we can first off conclude is that if the Mayans were predicting something, they sure weren't very clear about it, despite the claims among 2012ers that Mayan prophecies were very, very specific. But no one agrees on anything. I should also make it clear that I am an astrogeophysicist. I am not a metaphysicist. So I'm not going to address raises in consciousness, nor beams of energy, nor great serpents in the sky dropping ropes down to us that will transport us into stargates. And no, I did not make up that last one. There are people out there who really believe that that's going to happen in 2012. Instead, in this episode, I'm going to talk about two kinds of physical alignments and three kinds of apparent alignments. The first of the physical alignments is that the sun is going to actually get to the center of the galaxy and get zapped by the black hole or block some zappage by the black hole. The second physical alignment is that the sun will enter the galactic plane and lots of junk there is going to rain down on us and do something bad. The three apparent alignments have first to do with Earth aligning with the center of the galaxy or two the Sun aligning with the center of the galaxy. Or three, which is actually going to wait somewhat until the next episode, that the Sun is going to align with the center of the galaxy on exactly the winter solstice in 2012, either blocking energy or sending energy or opening up some gateway or some other such thing. That will be talked about in part two, what the sky looks like on December 21st, 2012 when I'll also be discussing what would happen with an alignment with the center of the galaxy. Again, stay tuned for next week. The final disclaimer of what I will and won't be addressing in this episode is what I'll also be addressing in future episodes. This is an introduction episode to a very broad range of claims. Over the next 12 months and 6 days, I'm going to also be discussing some very specific people's entire picture with regards to 2012, and some of that includes galactic alignments. Brent Miller of the Horizon Project is an example, as he thinks that the sun's physical entry into the galactic plane will cause a 
bunch of stuff in the galaxy's plane to rain down on us and cause some sort of pole flip somehow in some way. I'll be talking about pole flips in February. So when I talk about Miller, I'm going to be refreshing your memory both about pole flips, which I haven't talked about yet, and about galactic alignments, which I will be talking about in a few minutes. So with that said, before we get to the topic of alignments, or at least what 2012 people think is going to happen with alignments, I have to first actually discuss what an alignment actually is. This may seem like a very basic base concept, but it's one that an understanding of already eliminates one of the claims that I said I'd talk about. The first kind of alignment is a physical alignment, where you have two things pointing at each other, or maybe inside of one another. Two chopsticks in their little paper package are physically aligned. To get this kind of alignment, you need objects that have an obvious longer dimension to them, like a pencil, not like a planet. The other kind of alignment is an apparent alignment. This is when two objects appear to come together from a third object's vantage point. For example, if you close one eye, hold your finger out in front of your face, and don't do this if you're driving, and you move your finger just right so it blocks a distant light or a distant car if you're driving, but you shouldn't be driving and doing this while you're driving, or a tree or something else, then your finger and that object will have just made an apparent alignment from the vantage point of your open eye. Fairly straightforward. This is why we can eliminate the apparent alignment of Earth with the center of the galaxy. In that claim, you have two objects and no vantage point. You have to have the vantage point to get the alignment. This claim simply makes no sense. From somewhere in space, Earth is aligned with the center of the galaxy at every moment of every day. It's really that simple. So we're down from four alignments that I said I would discuss in this episode to three. The next task is to make somewhat longer work of the physical alignment claims of where the sun will be. To do that, I need to give you a crash course through the sun's orbit. And no, I'm not saying that the sun's orbit is going to crash in 2012. We are on Earth. Fairly straightforward. Most people know that. Earth orbits the sun, a star. Most people who have accepted the scientific revolution also accept that. The sun orbits the Milky Way, our galaxy. Unfortunately, fewer people accept that, but that's an episode for a future podcast. Just as Earth orbits within our solar system, but still orbits the solar system's center of mass... The sun does orbit the Milky Way's center of mass, but is still inside of the Milky Way galaxy. So that's a complicated way of saying that we are neither at the center of our galaxy nor at the edge. Whenever life gets you down, Mrs. Brown, and things seem hard or tough, and people are stupid, obnoxious or daft, and you feel that you've had quite enough Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour That's orbiting at 90 miles a second So it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power The sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day 
In an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour Of the galaxy we call the Milky Way Our galaxy itself contains a hundred billion stars It's a hundred thousand light years side to side Bulges in the middle, 16,000 light years thick, but out by us it's just 3,000 light years wide. We're 30,000 light years from galactic central point. We go round every 200 million years. And our galaxy is only one of millions of billions in this amazing and expanding universe. The numbers of Monty Python are reasonably accurate, though our orbital period is probably closer to about 250 million years to make one complete ellipse about the center of the galaxy. Notice that I said ellipse for the orbit. This is technically correct, but to a very good approximation, the stars out by us are mostly on nearly circular orbits. But besides just orbiting in a single plane, as in like a flat piece of paper, Stars also oscillate through the general gravitational plane of the galaxy. They generally stay within the quote-unquote thin disk region that contains about 95% of the stars in the galaxy, but this thin disk is on the order of a thousand light years thick. Now, the reason why it's still called thin is that compared to the diameter of the galaxy being 100,000 light years, that's still pretty small. It's about 1%. Our sun is one of those stars that does oscillate through the gravitational central plane of the galaxy. Now today, yesterday, tomorrow, and in 2012, the sun does not lie in the galactic midplane, but it's actually about 35 to 70 light years above it. Since there's no up in space, you could also say it does lie below it. It's also currently still traveling upwards or away from the galaxy's plane in the direction of the North Galactic Pole at a rate of about 7 to 8 kilometers per second. I'll repeat that. The sun is tens of light years away from the mid-plane of the galaxy, and it's getting farther away every second. It's also not on a perfectly circular orbit relative to the plane of the galaxy, moving presently inwards at a rate of about 10 to 11 kilometers per second. Its rotational velocity about the center of the galaxy is about 200 kilometers per second. Lots of numbers. I should also note that the center of our galaxy, the supergiant black hole known as Sagittarius A star, spelled as Sagittarius space big A hyphen star, or with an asterisk, also abbreviated as SAG space A asterisk, is at the celestial coordinates, 17 hours, 45 minutes, 40 seconds, right ascension, negative 29 degrees, 0 minutes, 28 seconds, declination. Again, a lot of numbers. I'll get to these numbers more later on. What they actually are isn't important at the moment. The point of listing all of these numbers is that astrometry, where astro meaning star, metry meaning measurement, all of this astronomy is based on science. 
It's based on what we can observe and what some very, very talented and very dedicated and probably very bored researchers have done over the last several decades. Those numbers were taken from a graduate-level textbook by the authors Spark and Gallagher. I'll have the full citation in the show notes. And it's also based on, as I said, very careful measurements and motions and positions of many, many stars. If you want to argue with it, you'd better come prepared. What this means is that if we go back to the ideas of physical alignments, that the sun is going to get to the center of the galaxy, or that it will enter the galactic midplane in 2012, they're wrong. There's no other way of saying it. They're wrong. They're simply, plainly, utterly wrong. I'll say that it's probably literally impossible for them to be right. That is, unless you want to invent some way for the solar system to travel several thousand times faster than the speed of light in order to get there in 12 months and 6 days. At this point, we're left with only one alignment claim, and one variant of it. The Sun will align with the center of the galaxy, or it will do so specifically on December 21st, 2012, and that this means that something special will happen, or something bad special will happen. So that the next podcast episode on what the sky looks like on December 21st, 2012 is longer than just the opening and closing music, I'm going to hold off on addressing the specific claim of December 21st until that episode. There are really two main premises of what will happen in or around December 21st, 2012, or just 2012 in general, with regards to the plane of the Milky Way. The first was popularized by John Major Jenkins back in 1998, and it deals with an apparent alignment as viewed from Earth. To quote him, Amazingly, the center of the cosmic cross, that is, right where the ecliptic crosses over the Milky Way, is exactly where the December solstice sun will be in AD 2012. This alignment occurs only once every 25,800 years. The bottom line of my theory is that the ancient Maya chose the 2012 end date because this is the date on which occurs a rare alignment of the solstice sun with the galactic center. The long count calendar is a galactic calendar because it pinpoints a rare alignment with the Milky Way galaxy due to occur in AD 2012, a date written as 13.0.0.0.0 in the long count. Now, Jenkins actually gets his dates wrong, but that's something I'll address in the next episode. The first thing to address here are his claims about the Mayan calendar, which I gave an intro to in the last episode in my interview with the Mayan scholar. First, there is no end date to the Mayan calendar, and even if there were, we don't know if it actually does line up with our calendar year of 2012. Second, the long count calendar or the abbreviated version of it that we're familiar with, lasts about 5,125 years. You will notice that 5,125 is not 25,800. It's not even an even divisor of 25,800. So this claim of his and others that the Mayan calendar is a cycle that aligns with Earth's processional cycle, which is what they're claiming, is wrong. I talked a little bit about precession, introducing the whole concept of it, in my Astrology Extravaganza episode. Precession is the phenomenon where the location in space that Earth's axis points to slowly moves around in a circle. It takes about 26,000 years to do so, 
and the effect is that the north and south pole stars change, and where the sun rises relative to the stars on a given date during the year also changes, so that the sun doesn't actually line up with the astrological constellations anymore. That was why I brought it up in the astrology episode. So, if the sun rose in the constellation Taurus, say 3,000 years ago on May 1st, then today it will rise one constellation over. It'll be in Taurus the next month, though. What this also means is that if the sun, at a particular time of year, happens to appear in our sky to be lined up with the galaxy, then it will be lined up every single year. The date just may shift a little. Those of you who are psychic, or maybe just active listeners, probably can tell where I'm going with this, but I'll belabor it a little bit longer. The galaxy that we're a part of is a spiral, but we're kind of on the inside of it. Yes, even though we're around 50,000 light years above it. Because we're inside of it, that means that we see all around us the galaxy as a band through the sky. It goes all around, just like if you stick your finger through a piece of paper, your finger is touching the paper in a band around your finger. If your finger had eyes all around it, it would see the band of paper. The center of the galaxy is something that we see nicely in the late summer during the evening, and it's what we're most familiar with because it's a thicker band through the sky. But in the opposite direction, if you're in a very dark sky site, you'll be able to see the band of the Milky Way through the entire sky. So again, opposite the direction of the center of the galaxy. The galaxy is tilted relative to the plane of our solar system as well. That's why it's at an angle through our sky. It's also why some people believe the sun is not part of our galaxy. But that's a different episode. What this means is that through the course of the year... Figured it out yet? That's right. The sun's path through our sky goes through the galaxy, twice every year, six months apart. I'll say it again because it's an important point. Twice every year, the sun appears to be aligned with the plane of our galaxy. That means by this point that there is absolutely positively nothing special about an alignment with our galactic plane. If there were, it would happen every year. Twice every year, six months apart. Because of precession, exactly when during the year this happens does change over the course of hundreds or thousands of years. Again, hundreds or thousands of years, it changes slightly. It just so happens that for about the last 300 years and through the next about 300 years, the time of year that the sun conjuncts with the plane towards the inside of the galaxy versus the outside of the galaxy happens to be in mid to late December. More on that in the next episode. At this point, I've been drawing out in probably excruciating detail an analysis of the idea that in 2012 there is a very specific alignment with our sun with the Milky Way galaxy. So far, I've explained that this is not true. It aligns twice with the plane of the galaxy every year. In that sense, this claim is now done with, and I could end the episode. But there's a specific variation that I also want to talk about. Most people don't say that the sun aligns with the plane or equator of the galaxy, but they say that it aligns with the center. Astronomers divide the sky up into latitude and longitude 
just like map makers do on Earth. If you project Earth's equator out into the sky, that's zero degrees latitude on the sky. Astronomers have to be complicated, and they call it declination. As I've talked about in previous episodes, Earth's axis is tilted 23.5 degrees relative to its path around the sun. That means that at any given time during the year, the sun must be between positive 23.5 degrees declination and negative 23.5 degrees declination. By definition and by orbital mechanics, the sun in the sky cannot appear beyond the positive to negative 23.5 degree declination. It doesn't matter where else in the sky the sun is in terms of longitude. In terms of latitude, it must and can only be between plus or minus 23.5 degrees. No matter where you are on Earth, no matter where the sun otherwise is in the sky, it must be and can only be between plus or minus 23.5 degrees. And as far as I can tell, this is not directly disputed by 2012 doomsdayers. But that brings us back to something I mentioned earlier. I talked about the center of the galaxy, which has a supermassive black hole that's called Sagittarius A star. I also talked about its position and told you it wasn't actually important for you to remember the numbers. That's because I'm going to repeat them now. The center of the galaxy in our sky is at negative 29 degrees, 0 minutes and 28 seconds declination. For those of you who remember basic math, negative 29 is not between plus or minus 23.5. That means it is not possible for the sun to align with the center of our galaxy. Not in 2011, not in 2012, not ever. If you want to claim otherwise, you need to explain why basic observational fact is wrong. That's what it really reduces to for all of these galactic alignments claims in the end. For the two physical alignment claims, they were both about the sun either getting to the center of our galaxy or the sun being in the plane of the galaxy physically crossing it. That's wrong based on all available astrometry, and to change it, you would need to move our solar system several times faster than light for this to happen in the next year. We also know that we're not anywhere near the actual center of the galaxy, because if we were, the band of the Milky Way would be bright and even across the entire sky, which it's not. The first apparent alignment claim was about Earth aligning with the galaxy. That's wrong because you don't have a specified vantage point from which the alignment would occur, and you could actually make up any point at any given moment from which the Earth would appear to be aligned with the center of the galaxy. As far as I know, the International Space Station hasn't suffered when Earth has been aligned with it from their vantage point. The second apparent alignment claim was that the Sun will align with the central plane or actual center of the galaxy as viewed from Earth. But the Sun can never appear to align with the center of the galaxy because of the way Earth orbits the Sun. But it does align with the plane of the galaxy, twice every year. The third apparent alignment claim I'll discuss in more detail next week, and that's that the second apparent alignment claim will happen specifically on December 21st, 2012, and that some people say will happen bad things when that occurs, just like my grammar. That brings us to the end of the discussion about galactic alignments, at least for this episode. 
The next one is going to be reasonably short because it's just a small extension of this one. As I mentioned at the beginning, the concept of these alignments, both physical and apparent, will come up throughout my discussion of the 2012 ideas over the next 12 months and 6 days. I'll be referring back to this episode quite a bit, but I'll also rehash some of the basic ideas when necessary. This week's Q&A question comes from Jeff S. of Virginia, who asks, If a gamma-ray burst was headed towards us, but it was coming from the opposite side of the sun, would we still feel the effects, or would the sun shield us? The short answer is, yes, it would shield us, but only if your gamma-ray burst, or GRB, were incredibly narrowly focused, very short in duration, and aimed exactly at Earth with the sun exactly in the way. The inner parts of the sun are dense enough to block gamma rays from getting to Earth. The problem is that the angular alignment is almost impossible to achieve for this to actually work out, and the width of the GRB beams, while thought to be fairly small, aren't that small. So yeah, theoretically we'd be okay, but practically speaking, your scenario would be next to impossible to actually occur. So that wraps up the short Q&A segment this time. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. In terms of feedback this week, there are actually uh, two different sets. The first is from iTunes. This week's iTunes feedback comes from Australia. Travis gives the podcast five stars and writes, Very informative and in a way that non-geniuses like me understand. Only criticism would be that it can be biased at times. Otherwise, ten for ten. I'm not entirely sure to what bias Travis is referring, and I with sincerity ask that he email me and let me know so that I'm more cognizant of it in the future. With that said, though, I'll admit I'm biased towards science and what we can actually observe. I mainly do this podcast because I find the topics interesting, and I hope to help people either be better able to combat pseudoscience when they find it, or to help push fence-sitters over the edge into the land of rationality. But I also do it a bit because there comes a point where mocking people because they are so out there becomes a bit enjoyable. I'll admit it. Also, when I bring in guests... I consider it a bit more of an opportunity to let my hair down, if I had much hair to let down. During my main solo episodes, like this one, I try to be fairly straightforward and just discuss the objective information with a bit of irreverence thrown in, like in this episode with calling Earth aligning with the center of the galaxy fairly stupid, because it is. But I'm not going to censor my guests quite as much, and in the discussion I may throw in my opinion too. So if Travis is talking about, like, when I said that Mike Barra's idea of elliptical orbits is absurd, and he considers me being biased for saying that, then I wholeheartedly agree with him, and I embrace it. With the specific feedback now out of the way, another bit of iTunes is reviews. It appears as though enough people have listened to and rated my podcast 
and no, that doesn't mean that those of you who haven't are off the hook, that iTunes has compiled a listeners also subscribed to list. They are mainly podcasts that I will admit I have never heard of. In order, they are The Invisible Sky Monster Podcast, a dumbass media productions production. The Skeprikons Podcast. The Dumbass's Guide to Knowledge, another dumbass media productions production. A Ration of Reason Podcast. Skeptical. Or maybe Skeptical. Are We Alone? The Skeptical Viewer. Atlanta Skeptics in the Pub. I've heard of that one. Big Science, What's the Big Idea? And Fuzzy Logic Science Show. I'm a bit surprised that shows like the SGU, The Conspiracy Skeptic, and a little bit surprised that Astronomy Cast are missing from the list. Not that I'm going to tell you what you should or should not be listening to, it's just what I would have expected. But since both of the Dumbass Media Productions podcasts are listened to by listeners of this... I'll give you all a special sneak peek that I will be interviewing my frenemy, the dumbass, sometime within the next few months in order to share with you his insights into debunking the unfortunately popular Ancient Aliens show on the History Channel. In terms of feedback related to an older episode, I actually have a follow-up on Carl Mamer's discussion from episode 12 of Nazis at the South Pole. I had asked Carl about Nazis on the moon, and his reply was that that idea wasn't really out there in conspiracy land. Then, on November 30th, Richard Hoagland was on Coast to Coast AM. Now, Mars might have mentioned Nazis. Well, we did discuss Nazis in the conversation, because how can you? He's done a hell of a job in researching the terrestrial history of Nazis. Right. And Farrell and I have looked into the space aspects and where they've gone. I mean... I know the Lacrosse mission, the NASA mission to so-called find water on the moon. All it right. was really a very clandestine effort to look at the Nazi base. They landed near the South Pole. They were forced to redirect away from being right next door. And I think it was the precursor to the X-37B missions, which are conducted secretly out of Shriver Air Force Base. And they have an office there called the Rapid uh, 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 Capability Office. And I know this from absolutely solid sources. So there's a lot going on here that we're not privy to. I'm trying to put the dots in public to give people enough information to make rational decisions. And I tell everybody, don't take my word for it. Go and Google and look for this yourself because a lot of it is open source. You just have to know what you're looking for. Now, I know some of you may want me to address all of that now because I did put it out there, but I'm not going to. I'm not really going to say anything about these points that Hoagland raised because I'm going to be spending in the future several episodes discussing many of his various uh, ideas that he puts out there. And with feedback and follow-ups out of the way, that means it's time for the puzzler, where each episode I ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. Last week, though, I changed things up a bit, and I asked the question of you. What do you think the definition of a planet should be? And then I said I would read some of the responses in the next full episode, being this one. Phil from San Diego gave probably the longest response. He wrote, I actually like the current IAU definition of planet and their creation of a separate category of dwarf planet. 
And by the definitions that make the most sense, Pluto is indeed a dwarf planet, not a planet. This is as it must be. If Pluto is considered a planet, then several recently discovered objects must also qualify as planets, making the total more than nine. And if Pluto is not considered a planet, then we have only eight. So no matter how you look at it, the long-taught statement, our solar system has nine planets, is now known to be false, and people will just have to deal with it. As the IAU explains, the ongoing discoveries of new and often large Kuiper Belt objects has greatly complicated things. These objects are so far away that we can't easily determine their shape, and their uncertain surface reflectivity keeps us from determining physical size from known distance and apparent magnitude. So under the traditional definition of planet as a sun-orbiting body large enough to be round, it's often really hard to tell if a particular Kuiper Belt object is a planet or not. We could never teach our kids with certainty how many planets are in our solar system. This is a very unsatisfying prospect. So it was wise for the IAU to adopt a definition of planet that clearly rules out everything beyond Neptune, known or yet to be discovered. By reserving the term planet for Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, we have a precise number that we can confidently teach our children and assure them that it won't change. I really like that. Leonard wrote in, A planet is a body that is capable of making its own shape spherical based on its own gravitational pull and does not revolve around another non-stellar object. If there are any moons related to the planet, the pivotal point for the combined system must be located within the planet. If there are two such objects that are somewhat similar in size, causing the pivot point for the system to not be within either planetary object, it could be considered a binary planet system, like Pluto and its main moon Charon. It does not matter if it formed out in deep space, far away from any stars, or within a solar system. A planet that is not rotating a star would just be a rogue planet. Walter wrote on my blog, I consider a planet to be anything that is massive enough to become spherical because of its own gravity, but I also have heard of the Star Trek test, in which you look at an object, as they do in Star Trek, and you say, hey, that's a planet. Many of the moons in our solar system would pass both of these tests, so I see how my reasoning is flawed, or this would cause confusion. So I guess Walter is saying that his definition is as good as or worse than the IAUs. Sea Otter from the SGU message board suggested, A planet is an object that orbits around its star with a significant metallic core. Finally, Parrot of the SGU message boards, also known as the CEO of the Dumbass Media Productions, didn't actually answer the question, but he chose to write in anyway. Your question about what defines a planet got me thinking. We all know about the new definitions cutting off Pluto's planet status, but I got to wondering about the other end of the spectrum. Should gas giants be considered planets? They're certainly not the same kind of thing as the Earth or Venus. Should they perhaps be in a category all their own? Has there been another discussion about this in that astronomical community? 
I somehow doubt that I'm the first one to have these thoughts. You can find my answer to Parrot, or you can stay tuned to January 1st's episode where I'll be using this as the Q in the Q&A. This week, the main segment was on galactic alignments, so the puzzler deals a little bit with alignments and is somewhat open-ended, though I do have some ideas in mind for what I'm looking for. There is a widely propagated myth that you will find in many media outlets every March 21st. It states that the vernal equinox in the Northern Hemisphere is the only day out of the year that you can balance an egg on its end. Let's assume that the myth is actually that you can do this on either equinox, March 21st or September 21st. Can you come up with an actual force that would in any way help, keyword help, you to balance an egg on its end on an equinox? Try to figure out the answer and send it to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next full episode. That wraps up this topic for the 15th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you had enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review, rate it on iTunes, and tell your friends and family. And if you happen to still be listening to this, we are on episode 15, and this is the end matter of the podcast, please send me an email and let me know, because I'm curious to know if anyone actually does. (laughs) 